All right, so if you've got a Bible, and I know most of you do, you can go to Psalm 146. Psalm 146. Now, uh, throughout our life, uh, we make commitments. As we go about living, we make commitments. We choose to do certain things. You all got up this morning and came to church. That was a commitment. You chose to do that. Some people uh, make commitments to diets. People make commitments to reading uh, Kindle over physical books. People choose Apple over Samsung. People choose to make a commitment to exercise. Some people go as far as choosing to not eat meat. I wouldn't do that. But if you've done that, that is okay. People choose Netflix over cable, sports teams, grocery stores. You know, you look, you're like, hey, that one has all the checkout lines. They're open all the time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to that one. We make commitments. We make commitments to relationships. You meet someone and, you're, and you realize that this, this person's fairly special. And then you, you make a commitment to go about living and building a life together. People make commitment to churches. Right? Many, you, many of you have done that here. Some of you are visiting for the first time thinking, is this a place that I can commit? We choose to commit to churches. We commit to reading lists. See, whatever your commitments are, I'm, I know you have a reason for doing them. When we make a commitment, we generally have a reason for doing them. Now, sometimes we make commitments and our reasons, though, aren't very good. So, I know you've made commitments to certain things, and I hope that those commitments, that the reasons for that is, is good, because sometimes we do that and it's not good. See, two summers ago, I committed to a summer reading list. I committed just to, I'm going to read these 20 books over the course of the summer. That was already a problem, 20 in two months or whatever it is. So I, I chose to do that, but my reasons for doing it were very bad. And I, 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 my reason was I wanted to look smart, I wanted to look good, and that led to me reading some of the most boring books for the entire summer. They were not good reasons. See, just like we make commitments, the writer of this psalm is going to make a commitment with his life. He commits, we're going to see, he commits to praising God for all times. Not sometimes, but all times. He commits to praising God every moment of his life. But his reason for doing it are great. He has great reasons for doing it. He chooses to praise God for all times because of who God is and what God does in the life of everyone who trusts him. He chooses to praise God. We've got to, get this, we've got to get this into our minds. He chooses to praise God because of who God is and what God does in the life of everyone who trusts him. And the commitment the psalmist makes is the commitment that we should make. It's the commitment that the text is calling us to make. And the psalm is going to show us that God is worthy of this. That he is worthy of our praise for all times. Before we jump in, let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, thank you that uh, the Bible says that your 
word did not come, Lord, by the will of men, but men were, were, spoke as they were led along by the Spirit. This was a Spirit-guided, Spirit-infused, intentional word that was given to us. And I pray, God, as you, as you gave us your word, I pray now that you would shepherd us in your word, all of our hearts. Lord, the heart that needs to be comforted, I pray you would shepherd that heart into a place of comfort. The heart, Lord, that needs to be renewed and, and get a sense of excitement again about who you are, I pray you would shepherd that heart in that place. Lord, that heart that needs to be revived for the first time, Lord, I pray that you would shepherd that heart into that place. God, I can't do all of these things. Only you can by your spirit. And so I pray as your word is open now that you would meet with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Verse, verse 1, Psalm 146 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Now, four times in two verses, the word praised is used. The writer calls everyone to praise the Lord. When he says, praise the Lord, some would translate that hallelujah. He's literally saying everyone in the congregation where this psalm would have been sung, he's saying, everyone join with me in praising God, in worshiping him. He calls everyone to praise, and then he tells his own soul to praise. You see that? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. He speaks to his soul. Now there's a lesson in that for us. The lesson is there are times in our life when praising God is hard. That it's not always easy to praise God. And the, the, the psalmist is aware of this. And that's why he says, praise the Lord, oh my soul. He, he is, he's engaging in self-talk. There are moments in our life, maybe some of you right now in this room, that's the place you're in. When you look at your life, when you think about what is going on, when you think about the things that have rolled in on your doorstep, you would say, it is very hard at this point to praise God. It's not that easy, but in those moments, we are to engage in self-talk. Psalm 42 is such a good example of this. The psalmist there speaks to his soul. He says, why are you downcast, my soul? Hope in God. He speaks to his own soul. And we can do the same, reminding ourselves of who God is and what he has done in our life. That no matter what, that in those low moments, in those moments where it's hard to praise God, there are certain things about me that has not changed because of the gospel. Because I, who I am in Christ, there are certain things that have not changed. I am accepted by God. I am loved by God. I'm included into the family of God. I will never be cast out of the family of God. I've got a community of faith that loves me and that will walk with me and shoulder things with me as I tell them these things. Yes, the moments are low, but when I speak to my soul, when I review what is true about the gospel, when I review what is true about where I'm going, when I review what is true about what God has done in my life, I can in those low moments still praise because of the ways that God is working in my life. And so the writer calls others to praise. He tells his own soul to praise. And then he commits to a life of praise. Verse 
He commits to a life of praise. He says, I will praise the Lord, verse 2, as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. He plans to give his whole life to this. Now it's interesting because when we hear the word praise, what often comes into our minds is singing. When we hear praise, what often comes into our minds is singing. Like when we hear the word church, what often comes into our mind is building. When we hear church, we think building. Now just like the church is more than a building, singing, praise, sorry, is more than just singing. It's right for us to sing praise to God. That is right, and we should, because it pleases God when he hears it. But singing is just one aspect of praise. There's also talking. There's also talking. See, I can sit my six-year-old son Zion down and say, Zion, I am so proud of you. I'm so proud of the way that you have grown, that you used to be terrified to go to any other church than our church. That it used to be a miserable experience for you driving in the car, but I'm so proud that now we get somewhere and you're like, Dad, I can't wait to see Wyatt. I can't wait to go to class. And he just kind of jumps out of the van. I can tell him how proud I am of that or I can tell you how proud I am of my son. To see him growing up, to see the confidence that I believe God is working in his life, to see him stroll across the lawn going to school, unafraid of what he's going to while his dad is so afraid of letting him go to school. That I never want to let his hand go, that sometimes I'm like, hey, can I have a kiss before we, I let you go? And he's like, no, dad, I'm good. I'm like, what do you mean you're good? <laughs> I'm your dad. I want some lip service, bro. I'm like paying for all the clothes. You're... But he's just like, nope, you're embarrassing me. I'm good. I'm like, you're six. You should tell me I'm embarrassing you when you're 16. This is way too early. But he's confident. And I can, so I can praise him to his face or I can praise him to you and say, I'm very proud of my son. It's the same with God. You can stand in your living room in the morning and sing praises to God and thank him for everything that he has done in your life. Or you can walk across the street and say to your neighbor, hey, can I tell you about God and the things that he has done in my life? We praise God by singing, but we also praise God by talking to him, about him to others. The people that God brings in and out of our lives, telling them who he is and what he will do in the life of anyone who trusts him. We praise him in these ways. We praise God by singing, talking. We also praise God by living. We bring praise to God by the way we live our lives, when we live lives that are worthy of the gospel, when we are confessing and repenting of our sin and receiving the forgiveness that he offers when we sin, when we consider other people, when we consider their interests above our own, when we treat believer and unbeliever with dignity and respect, we bring praise to God. When we steward well the gifts that God has given us, the resources that he has given in our lives, our gifts, our talents. 
when we steward those things well, we bring glory to God. Why? Because it's God working in us to make that possible. It's the Spirit filling us again to be able to do these things. And so praise doesn't come to us. It goes to God. See, praise is not just singing. It's also our living. So the writer commits to praising God, and he calls us to join him in that. And then the rest of the way in the psalm, he gives us three reasons Three great reasons why we should. Here's the first one. It's because God is our eternal hope. He's our eternal hope. Verse 3 says, Put not your trust in princes, in the Son of Man, in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. So here in verse 3, the writer gives us a warning. He says, Put not your trust in princes. Princes. Now, when he says that, he's not saying don't trust in the member of the royal family. He's not saying don't put your trust in Prince George. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't put your trust in people, people who look influential, people who are powerful. Princes in our context would be political leaders, right? People with political power, spiritual leaders, even influential celebrities, people with cash. People, if they put something, post something on social media, the world just sort of gets buzzing all around it. He's saying that's where our trust is not to be put. We're not to put our trust in those people. And some of those people do some very good things. But that is not where our trust is to go. I was reading a magazine that I subscribe to as Wired Magazine. And I'm reading uh, in this magazine, and uh, Jeff, I think Bezos is his name, the guy who sort of uh, runs Amazon. He's got this little pet project that's going on in the, in the Texas desert that some people know about, but many people don't. And what he's working on is this idea that we would be able to just sort of take, you know, a, a ride up to space and come back down. Right? This whole, it's this massive rocket, and they're trying to figure out how to make it comfortable. They're trying to figure out how to make it easy so that you don't sort of have to have some stewardess-type person on there with you. You just sort of get in, and in 11 minutes, you sort of... Go up and come down. And they're like, it's going to be for everyone, you know, the common man. But probably not. It's probably going to be for people who have like a million dollars to take a space ride. But ultimately, though, his goal is that not only would we take a ride into space for 11 minutes and come back down, but ultimately that we could live there. So he wants, it's, it's one step, but there's another step that he'd like to take, which is just he wants to get us off the earth. He's like, the earth is running out of resources, and we need somewhere that we are going to live and survive all of this. And as I'm reading this article, I'm like, one, this is pretty cool, but I find myself starting to feel like, I, I wonder if this could work. I wonder if things, you know, sort of ran out. Maybe we could live on space stations and all. And you almost feel yourself tempted to trust in that. And that's exactly what the Bible says not to do. It's to not to look at those sorts of things and think, this is the way we are going to be saved. That's exactly where our trust is not supposed to go. And here's why. That person, that influential, that powerful person, here's what happens to them. Verse 4, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day his plans perish. We aren't to put our trust and hope in people because people die. Because we are mortal. That on that day, 
when they die and pass away, all of their plans end with them. Everything comes to an end. We are mortal. Now, this, this picture that the Bible gives us of the mortality of those powerful, influential people should remind us of our own mortality. That there's a day coming that, that we are going to die. But that we as Christians don't face death with fear. Because it says that when we die, we are in the presence of our Father. We go right to glory, so to speak. And so we face death with confidence. But we are to be aware that death is coming. And death, actually being aware of that, that it's coming, helps us to not waste any time. The fact that death is at the doorstep for everyone should encourage us to not waste any of the days that God gives us with the people in our life. In Psalm 90, it says, teach us to number our days so that we would get a heart of after you. Some translation says a heart of wisdom so that we would look at the moments that we get with the people in our lives and we should say, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be here and so I am not wasting any of the moments that I get with you. I am delighting in every day that God gives me. We face it with confidence, but we also allow it to help us to live in wise, wise ways. The influential, they can't save us. The writer wants us trusting in the Lord who can save us. And when our hope is in the Lord, we're blessed. When your hope is in God, you're blessed. You're like, how do you know? Verse 5, blessed. See that? Not lying. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. The person who hopes in the Lord is blessed because the creator of the universe is on their side. The one who made all things. The one who is ruling and guiding all things. I was reading this psalm this morning and sort of praying over all of you and whoever would sit under the hearing of the word. And then God just reminded me, myself, my own heart, how much I need to remember that he is the one who's in charge of everything. That he made all things and that he is on my side. He's on your side as well. Everything is under his control. See, when we're hoping in God, we're hoping in the one who is eternal. The one who stands outside of his creation. The one who is guiding his creation to the end that he wants. See, he's not like the princes who are passing away. We're trusting also in the one who is completely trustworthy. Verse 6, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. The CSB translates this. It says that he remains faithful forever. God is faithful. Do you believe that? When you look at your life, when you look at the ways that you think about God, do you actually believe that God is faithful? When you stand in a congregation and when you sing, great is thy faithfulness, does that actually touch your heart? Does that take you to a place of trust and confidence where you believe that that is actually true or do you just mouth it because everybody else is? 
Do you truly believe that God is faithful? See, God can be trusted. Whatever God promises to do, he will do it. God is not like the pizza man. Who tells you that your hot and ready is coming in 30 minutes, and then it shows up in 45 minutes? It's, God's not like that. He is faithful. If he says he's going to do something, he will do it. He's never late. It always comes in his perfect timing. That's why Psalm 118. Psalm 118 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. See, this here is a great reminder for believers. It's a great reminder for us because it tells us that, that if we have all of our hope in the basket of God, if all of our hope, all of our plans, all of our trust is in the basket of God, that will not be in vain. God says, it says in the word, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God has started something good in you. And the Bible says that he will complete it. That is a promise. You can hold on to that. Having all of your hope in God will not be in vain. This is a, a reminder for believers, but it's also a call to unbelievers. It's a reminder to encourage believers, but it's also a call to unbelievers, those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, those who are not walking with Jesus, those who are doubting that. It's a reminder. It's to tell you. It's a call to say that if you have your hope and trust in anything else other than Jesus Christ, it will be in vain. And I don't, I'm not saying that to be disrespectful to you, I'm not saying that to come off some sort of like high and mighty person that I've, as if I'm above you. That is not my heart in saying that. I'm saying that because it's true. And God in his grace, if you are here and you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, he is in his grace telling you, reminding you, saying that death is a reality for everyone. And that there is a day coming where all of us will stand before God. And if you're trusting in anything else other than Jesus Christ, you will stand before your creator without the advocate. Without Jesus Christ. And that will not go well. But today can be the day that you, you can turn and trust in Jesus Christ for the first time. And find yourself full of hope, waiting on him to come and get you. It's a call. It's a reminder to believers. Having all our hope in God will not be in vain. But unbelievers, it's a call to say today is the day to trust in Jesus Christ. This is why we praise God for all times because he is the one who sent his son to live and die for us. God is our only hope. We praise him for this. He's also our eternal help. He's our eternal hope, but he's also our eternal help. Verse 7, it says, Who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widows. 
and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. In these verses, we're given a list of ways that God helps the needy. He rhymes that off. And then we're told sort of in the middle, in verse 8, it says that the Lord loves the righteous. So you get this list, but then in the middle there, you see this thing where he says, and the Lord loves the righteous. Now, anytime someone is called righteous in the Psalms, it's always speaking of somebody who is needy, but they trust God to meet their needs. They're called righteous because they look to God for help. See, in the, the people in these verses are called righteous because in the, in the history of, of Israel, there was, a, there was temptations to trust in princes. There were temptations to trust in something else other than God, but they did not. And so they're called Righteous. They did not trust in the princes of their day. They're actually being contrasted with the people in verse 9. In verse 9, it says that the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. See, the wicked is someone who trusts themselves or they trust in princes. They trust in someone else, something other than God. And it says that things does not end well for that person. Things go well. Things go well for the person who's trusting God. It says the Lord loves the righteous, people who trust in him. And this should encourage us. This is meant to encourage us because Christians, we are called righteous. When you read through the New Testament, we are called righteous. And we're called righteous for trusting the Lord, but it's not because we have lived perfect lives. We're not called righteous because of anything in us. We're called righteous because of Jesus Christ. We're called righteous because of what he has done. See, when I hear verse 2, put not your trust in princes, right away I know I'm in trouble. As soon as I read that verse, I know that I'm in trouble because I know how many times in my life I've trusted myself or I've trusted something else. And so I know right away that I've failed. I know right away that I'm guilty. And maybe if you look into your life, you'd see that you have some similar tendencies. Maybe if you examine yourself, you'll see that there's moments where you trust in something else other than God. But not Jesus. There's never a moment where Jesus put his trust in people. John 2 John 2, verses 23 to 25 says, Many believed in his name when he saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Jesus entrusted himself to his Father. And he lived a perfectly righteous life as a way of worship and praise to his Father. And because of his life and death on the cross for our sins, when we trust in Jesus Christ, that righteousness is given to us. And so when we are called righteous, it's talking of an imputed righteousness. It's accredited righteousness. And then when we turn to Jesus, he gives us all the help we need. 
Jesus Christ gives us all the help we need. Do you know that everything that's listed in this psalm, Jesus does for us? Everything listed here, Jesus does for those who are trusting in him. We are oppressed. And I know when I say that we are oppressed in this room, it doesn't hit the same way that it would hit if I say we are oppressed to some Christians around the world. See, we can gather here and open our Bibles and I can speak and everything like that. We can sing praise to God. We can hug one another after the service. We can head out after that for a good lunch. But that's not the reality for every Christian. There are some Christians in the world that when they meet together, it's huddled somewhere full of fear but also filled with faith. Because if they're found out for, for meeting, they would get killed. And so we don't always feel the oppression that is on Christians in, in the ways that some other people feel it. But maybe that will change. Maybe there's going to come a day where we'll feel that just a little bit more. But other Christians feel that. But even though we don't always feel it in the same ways, it is true. But we don't have to take justice into our own hands. The Bible says that we can continue entrusting our souls when people oppress us, entrusting our souls to a faithful creator while doing good because God will take care of all of it. And so we put our trust and our hope in God. And yes, people may oppress us, but we are called to continue to love them and pray for them. We hunger for righteousness. And when we come to Jesus Christ, he satisfies us. We were prisoners to sinful habits. Some of us in this room know what it was like to go to that sin over and over again, but we also are sitting in this room knowing the freedom we have now from that sin. Because Jesus has done that. The Spirit is in us that gives us the power to say no to that sinful habit. And now we are living in gospel freedom. Jesus does that in our lives. We were blind, but now our eyes are open. Our eyes are open to our world. We see it clearly. Our eyes are open to where we are going. We see that clearly. Our eyes are open to ourselves. We see ourselves clearly, and that should infuse a level of humility into our life, not self-righteousness, because we are so aware of our brokenness, of the leftover and residual sin that is still there, but we know that there's a day coming where that will all be gone. And so we see ourselves clearly. We have been bowed down. Maybe some of us right now, we're bowed down by grief, but when we come to Jesus Christ, he lifts us up. We are sojourners, the Bible says. That living here on earth is a sojourn. That we are exiles in some ways. But we're also promised that that is going to come to an end. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. Our sojourn is not going to go on forever. It's going to come to an end. We are going to be with our Father one day for all eternity. We were without a husband. And as his church, we are now his bride. We walked away from our father, but by faith, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we've been adopted into the family of God. Jesus, the Lord, our eternal help, he meets all of our needs. And now as people who have been helped in these ways. Do you know what we are to do? We are to turn around and help others. 
Jesus meets all of our needs so that we as Christians would turn around and meet the needs of those around us who are needy. We can live now righteous lives through the power of the Holy Spirit and help the oppressed, the hungry, the prisoner, the blind, the bowed down, the sojourner, the widow, the fatherless. I love what Isaiah 58 says on this. Isaiah 58, it says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is, not this, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then, your light, then shall your light break forth like the dawn. Now this is first written to the people of Israel, but God is actually upset with them. And he's upset with them because they just, they go to temple and they go home. They go to temple and they go home. They go to temple, they go home. And God says, I am, I'm kind of sick of that. Because you do all of that, but then you look and you ignore your own flesh. The broken and the oppressed are all around you, but you just ignore them. And so when we go up the ladder and then come down the ladder to our day, we sometimes drift into the same thing. Church, home. Church, home. Church, work, home. And we ignore the oppressed. We ignore the broken. The church is supposed to be about the word. Yes. But it's also supposed to be about deeds. Caring for the poor and the needy. Notice it says in Isaiah that when we do that, when the church lives like that, it's like the dawn. Have you ever seen like a sunrise coming up? You almost can't take your eyes off of it. It's that beautiful. Think about what it would look like in Newmarket and in Toronto and in the GTA if we committed to these ways as a church. Now, I know some of you are doing those things. But what if all of us got on this train, that not, we're not just going to just go and do church and then go home, that we're going to do the church thing, yes, but we're also going to look for those in the community who we can serve and help and minister the gospel, minister the love of Jesus Christ. The Bible says it would be like the dawn, that people would, couldn't get their eyes off of a church like that. And so we pray and ask the Spirit to lead us to people like this, to open our eyes to people like this so that we can love them and minister to them with the love of Jesus Christ. And hear this, we do this for believers and unbelievers. We love the church of God in a special way, yes, but we are called also to love all of humanity, all of the other image bearers of Jesus Christ. And we ask the Spirit to do this. And we do these things not for our glory, not for our praise, but for the praise and glory of God. Why? Because it's Him working in us. See, praise is not just singing. It's also our living. We can live in such a way that brings praise and glory to God. And it's right for God to get praise and glory because God is king. Look at verse 10. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. We choose to praise God because he's our hope, our help, and because he is our eternal king. 
our final point, our eternal king. See, when I read verse 10, I, again, I'm blessed. I'm blessed because it reminds me that even though our world looks bumpy and rocky, every time you sort of go on Twitter or something like that, you're like, what is going on? Even though it feels that way, it reminds us that we are not without a king on the throne. That God is in charge and that our king will reign for all eternity. Again, he's being contrasted with princes. See, God is king for all time. See, God is not on his throne sort of like, well, I better knock a couple things off of my agenda because I only get four years. God is not like a politician who has to say, please vote for me, please vote for me, please vote for me. That is not how it goes with God. He is reigning and will reign for all times. His tenure is not temporary. And the text makes it clear. It says he reigns forever. And just in case we're like, really? He says, to all generations. The credits are never going to roll on God. He reigns over all people, those who praise him and those who do not. And one day, all people will bow at his feet. Romans 14 says, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. See, remembering that God is king is healthy for us. It's healthy for us to remember that God is king because it reminds us that there's a day coming where God is going to put everything right. That everything will be made right. Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, see it? King. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let's try it again. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and trustworthy and I'm just trying to wake you up. Trustworthy and true. He's going to make everything right. All will be put right and we can trust God because he is faithful to do that faithful. It's also healthy because it keeps us in a place of humility. It's healthy for me to remember that God is king because it puts me in a place of humility. See, it's hard for me to drift in and out of pride when I remember that the world, it's not about me. That everything doesn't sort of stop at me. That everything is not about me. That I'm, I'm here for him. That I'm not king. That I'm simply a servant of the king. It's also healthy because it reminds us that we have someone who we're accountable to. Hebrews 4 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Knowing that God is king reminds us we have someone who we are accountable to, helps us to live Spirit-filled, God-honoring lives. Not because we are scared of our king. Because God is not like earthly kings. God is not a tyrant. God is not a king who uses and abuses his people. God is a king who serves, shepherds, 
guides, walks with his people all the days of their life. The psalm says that his mercy and his goodness follow us. He's a good king. And so we live lives that are God-honoring to him, not because we're scared of him, but because we want to hear at the end of our lives, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We want to please him because we know that joy is coming to us. The writer of the psalm chooses to praise the Lord all the time. That's why he ends where he started. Says, he says, praise the Lord. He started by saying, hallelujah, praise God. He ends by saying, hallelujah, praise God. He calls all of us to praise God with him. And we have seen that we have great reasons for doing it. We have great reasons to commit to doing this all the time. All the time. In the moments where we're feeling on top. And maybe you woke up that way this morning. Hallelujah. Praise God. That was how your morning went. Right? You don't have like four crazy kids. So you're like, praise God. Your kids are all grown up. They're out, right? Maybe you woke up that way. Praise God. But maybe you woke up this morning and you just felt defeated. You just felt like you, you, I, I just can't keep doing it. And honestly, I woke up with that vibe a bit this morning. Just keeping it 100 with you, keeping it straight. I woke up this morning like, God, you have to help me preach because I can't keep doing it. And felt like I couldn't do it. Driving here with my family thinking, how am I going to do this again? Some of us wake up and we're on the mountaintop. Some of us wake up and we're in the valley. But on the mountaintop or in the valley, we can praise God because he's with us on the mountain. And he's with us in the valley. He's down there with us. There's never a moment in your life where God is not with you. Because God is a good father who never abandons his children. He's our king, he's our hope, he's our help, and he's with us at every single moment. And so we put all of our trust, all of our hope, all of our faith in God. And when we're on top, we say, praise God. And when we're in the valley, we say, help me, God. Because you are good. And I know when I, when I ask for help, you're going to do it. You're going to do it because you promised to do it. You promised that you are with me in the valley and on the mountaintop. And so we praise God for all times.